Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. As always, I am your host, Kadra. And man, guys, buckle up. I have a crazy story for you guys today. I've actually been wanting to share this story on the podcast since I started it. And I heard this story a couple years ago. There's twists, turns, it's super creepy, really crazy story. Uh, But we are at the top of the show. So, as always, we have a couple of housekeeping things to take care of, but I'm excited you guys are here. I hope you've been having a great week. As always, if you like what you've been hearing on the podcast and you haven't yet, please take two seconds and leave a five-star review on whatever podcast platform that you're listening on. If you are watching on YouTube, then you can see my fantastic uh, Portal to the Cat Dimension shirt that I'm wearing today. (laughs) And uh, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can follow the podcast as well on whatever podcast platform that you're listening on to keep up with when episodes have been released. And tell your friends and family about the podcast. It's still really small. Leaving reviews, subscribing, and word of mouth, that is the best way and the easiest way to get this podcast out to more people. Thank you guys so much for listening, though. I really appreciate it. You can also check out my socials, uh, TikTok, Instagram. Those are Perplexity Mystery Podcast. And if you have a crazy story that you want to share with me, or if you want to request a topic, you can DM me on Instagram, or you can email me at perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. If you missed last week's episode, that was a crazy case. It was a true crime case about a serial killer named Harvey Kerrigan. It was a listener request. So I love when you guys send requests. Definitely go back and check that episode out if you missed it. It's also on YouTube. Last couple things before we get into the story, I wanted to do some quick shout outs because I have some new listeners in three countries. So Brazil, Singapore, and Portugal now. And so that means that Perplexity has listeners in 19 countries. Blows my mind. Thank you guys so much for listening. That's amazing. And I also wanted to shout out my friend Ashley, who bought me a coffee this week. And she said, I'm really proud of you for putting yourself out there. And I really enjoy listening to your podcast. Keep up the good work. So thank you so much, Ashley, for buying me a coffee. If you guys would like to buy me a coffee, the buy me a coffee link is in each episode description and it's just a way to support the podcast. I think that about wraps it up. So let's get into this story. Trigger warning, content warning as always. This podcast is not for kids. We are going to be covering some disturbing topics today. So listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners below the age of 13. This story takes place in a small town in Massachusetts known as Pepperell, and it's the year 1986. Let's talk about some people. So we have 15-year-old Annie and 8-year-old Jessica Andrews, who are sisters. So this is the Andrews family. The Andrews family had recently lost their mother, unfortunately, to cancer. The mother died abruptly and unexpectedly. It seems like they knew that she had cancer, but she seemed to be doing fine. So the death was very traumatic and sudden for the family. And to lose your mom at 15 and 8 years old, 
that would be, you know, incredibly difficult. So Annie and Jessica are grieving. They were also very, very close to their mother. Their dad, Brian, is in the picture, but he works full time. So especially after losing the mother, he has to work a lot. He's gone all the time. So really, Annie and Jessica are dealing with a lot of this grief by themselves, like just the two of them, because their dad's having to work so hard to make ends meet for the family. So Brian starts working extra shifts. He's a bus driver, and this would leave Annie and Jessica home alone very often, which was also very common during this time period. So one night, while Brian was out working, the girls decide that they want to try to get in contact in the spiritual realm with their mother. They really want to connect with her, and they somehow get a hold of a Ouija board. They would later admit that they didn't expect anything to happen, but they were so desperate for any sort of connection with their mother, they were willing to try anything. So Annie and Jessica went down into their basement, and they have what is considered a teenage girl's version of a seance. They light some candles, they sit in a circle, they're seeing if their mother is there, you know, asking, are you there? Can you hear us? Uh, can you give us a sign? And this goes on for a few hours. During the seance, though, nothing happens. So eventually, the girls give up for the night. They're feeling a little bit defeated, and they put the Ouija board away. So the seance wasn't necessarily successful, but the girls did say that after the seance, they felt a little bit more at peace, and they felt more close to their mom. So it was probably a little bit therapeutic for them, just being able to sit and talk with her spirit, even if they didn't get any kind of response. The girls eventually went upstairs to their bedrooms and went to bed for the night. Brian worked really late shifts, so he still was not at home at this point. Some time passes, it's the middle of the night. Annie and Jessica are in separate bedrooms, they're both asleep. Both of the girls from their separate bedrooms start to notice a strange tapping sound. It startles them, it wakes them up, and the tapping sound seems to be coming from inside of the walls. Eventually, Jessica gets up and goes into Annie's bedroom to see if she's hearing the same thing that she is. So Jessica's like, uh, Annie, are you hearing this too? And Annie's like, yeah, girl, I'm hearing it. What is going on? And basically, because the girls are, again, missing their mother so much, they attribute the sounds to maybe the seance worked and this is our mom trying to get in touch with us. This is great news. So out loud, Annie and Jessica start to ask questions to whatever is the source of this tapping sound. They're like, are you here with us right now? Can you show yourself to us? So later that night, Brian eventually comes home from his late shift at work and Annie and Jessica rush out to greet their father, even though it's the middle of the night. They're so excited about this tapping noise and the seance and potentially getting into contact with their mom. So they start to tell him all about it. But at this point, Brian's worked a very long shift. He really is not listening or taking any of this seriously. He just thinks that the girls miss their mom. 
Annie and Jessica also mention the tapping sound to Brian as well. But again, he brushes it off and basically tells the girls, go back to bed. You're 15, you're eight years old. It's the middle of the night. So this tapping sound would continue for several days. And each time it appeared to be coming from Annie's room inside of the walls. The tapping sound was incessant. It would go on throughout the whole day and even throughout the night. But each time that Annie and Jessica would try to get their dad and show him this tapping sound, it would stop. So after this tapping sound goes on for several days, then this poltergeist seems to ramp up. Annie and Jessica started to notice objects were being moved around the house and disappearing altogether. Furniture would move out of position, silverware had been moved around, just small things around the house. Annie and Jessica would even come home from school sometimes and see that the furniture in their bedrooms had been rearranged. At this point, now Brian is starting to notice that weird things are happening at the house as well. He's noticing items are being moved or disappearing, but again, he thinks it's just the girls acting out or grieving in some way about their mom. So Brian starts to blame the girls, like, hey, cut it out, quit moving stuff around the house. But each time that Brian would blame Annie and Jessica for this happening, the girls were insistent that this was 100% not them. At this point, Annie and Jessica also are starting to feel a little bit scared. They don't think that whatever this spirit is, is their mom, because why would their mom try to scare them? So Annie and Jessica start to theorize that perhaps when they messed with this Ouija board, they let out some other spirit, perhaps something more dark and sinister. One night, the girls even hear their doorbell ring, but when they run to the door, no one is there. And again, Brian was always working late. So when the doorbell rang, Brian wasn't home. He didn't get to hear it. So one evening, it's January 1987, and Annie and Jessica are hanging out together in the front room of their house. While they were home alone, Brian was out working, and the tapping sound from in the walls comes back. But this time, Annie and Jessica start to listen more and more to the tapping sound, and they realize the sound is actually not coming from inside the walls anymore. It seems like the tapping sound has moved. As they follow the sound, they follow the sound downstairs to the basement. So it's 15-year-old Annie and 8-year-old Jessica home alone hearing a tapping sound in the basement. The girls at this point have had enough of this, and that's basically what gave them the courage to go down to the basement and investigate the noise. 15-year-old Annie even grabbed a knife for self-defense before they went down the stairs. But by the time that they got down the stairs, the tapping sound stopped, and they found nothing. So Annie and Jessica are beyond frustrated and scared at this point, but Again, they can't find any source for the sound in the basement, so they give up, and just when they turn around to start to leave the basement, they make a startling discovery. Annie and Jessica notice there is a strange message written on the wall next to the basement stairs. 
They get closer to read the message, and it appears it is written in blood. Now, there are some conflicting reports on what the message said, but some sources report the message read, quote, Come and find me. I'm in your closet. Other sources claim that the message read, I'm in your room. Come and find me. But either way, this message is terrifying. And the girls are so freaked out, they let out a huge scream, they sprint up the stairs, and they end up bolting out of the house, running across the street to a neighbor's to get help. So Annie and Jessica tell the neighbors what happened, and they ultimately decided to stay at the neighbor's house and wait to go back into their house until their father came home from work. So the neighbors call Brian, They tell him what's happened, and he comes home to talk to the girls. The police also came, and from what I found, it's not clear if the neighbors called the police or if Brian called the police, but the police did come to investigate. Brian's initial reaction is to not believe the girls again. He still thinks that this could be them, either wanting to get more attention from him, wanting him to be home more, or it's just their way of grieving. So when the police arrive, Brian and the police go together inside of the house. They go down to the basement and they look at this written message on the wall. And this is when Brian and the officers discover that the writing is not in blood, it's written in ketchup. So Brian is super embarrassed at this point. He thinks this was a prank that Annie and Jessica did, and he's embarrassed that the police came all the way out for essentially nothing. So Brian apologizes to the officers and tells them, you know, false alarm, you can leave, I'm so sorry. Brian is pretty upset at this point, and this is when he tells Annie and Jessica that enough is enough and that they need to go to grief counseling. After this strange event in the basement, several weeks goes by and nothing seems to happen. The house is quiet. The tapping stopped, there's no more creepy messages. So Annie and Jessica are relieved and they thought maybe the house went back to normal. But one night while Brian is at work, the tapping sound comes back again. So Annie and Jessica get up and they creep down the hall together to find the source of the sound. As they get closer, they realize the sound is coming from upstairs where the girls' bedrooms are. So the girls creep up the stairs and eventually they enter Annie's bedroom and figure out this is where the sound is coming from. This is when the girls enter Annie's bedroom and they find a second message written on the wall. This time the message says, I'm back, find me if you can. This once again startles the girls to their core and they do the same thing. They scream, they freak out, they run out of the house, run to the neighbors to get help. The neighbors call Brian, Brian comes home and he goes to the neighbor's house They discuss what happened, and again, Brian is angry. He doesn't understand why the girls keep doing this, and at this point, he's at his wit's end. But this time, the neighbors have seen how visibly startled Annie and Jessica are, and the neighbors basically say to Brian, look, they are so genuinely scared, I don't think that they could be faking this. There is something in that house. So this time... Brian says, okay, look, 
everybody stay here. I will go to the house myself and I am going to look through that house with a fine tooth comb and I'm gonna figure out what the hell is going on so that we can just put an end to all of this. So that's what he does. He goes to the house, he walks in the door, but the first thing that Brian sees when he walks inside is the house is in total disarray. There's broken glass, furniture is turned over, there's trash everywhere. Pictures had even been removed from the walls. And I do have a photo of what appears to be their living area in this disarrayed state. So I'll put this photo on the Instagram page as well. So Brian sees the extent of the damage and this is when he finally realizes there's no way this could be the work of Annie and Jessica. He knows that they wouldn't vandalize the home. Brian also realizes that every television in the home has been turned on. So now, with heightened adrenaline, Brian begins to creep slowly through the home. He goes from room to room, searching for the source. He eventually searches the entire downstairs and finds nothing, so he decides to check upstairs. When Brian finally reaches the top of the stairs, he finds a photo of Annie with a knife stuck into it. Brian then finds a third message written on the wall in ketchup that says, marry me. So eventually Brian reaches Annie's bedroom where the second message had been found and he sees the message on the wall. I'm back, find me if you can. But again, despite seeing all these crazy things and hearing all the TVs on, he's not seeing any source for this crazy phenomenon. So he turns towards his bedroom. He's going to search his bedroom next. But as he turns towards his bedroom, he hears a noise come from behind him in Annie's room. So he turns back towards Annie's bedroom. And this is when he meets the eyes of an intruder. There is someone in Annie's closet. And the more that Brian looks at this intruder, he realizes this intruder is a man dressed in women's clothing, wearing a wig and lipstick. He also realizes that this intruder is holding a hatchet. So some reports say that this intruder was not only wearing a dress, but they were wearing Brian's deceased wife's wedding dress, hence the marry me message on the wall. So Brian is obviously very startled. This catches him off guard, so he stumbles backwards, and the intruder starts to run down the hallway out of the house in an attempt to escape. Brian tries to grab the intruder to capture them, but they somehow manage to get past Brian, and this intruder seemingly vanishes. Brian can't find this guy anywhere, but eventually he composes himself and he leaves the house, goes back to the neighbor's house, and he calls 911. Brian stayed with his daughters at the neighbor's house until the police arrived. When the police arrive, they search the house top to bottom, just like Brian did, 
but they can't find this intruder anywhere. But the police do believe Brian's story, and they encourage Brian to take Annie and Jessica and go stay in a different place for a while. Don't stay at the house. Brian ends up taking Annie and Jessica to a relative's home to stay there for a bit until they can figure this out. This goes on for two weeks, and Brian continues to wonder how this intruder could have possibly gotten away. They were in a very distinct outfit. It was broad daylight when this happened, so how could they have gotten away with nobody seeing them? The police are also not coming up with any type of leads, so the investigation is at a total standstill. After two weeks, Brian makes the difficult decision to bring Annie and Jessica back to the house. They decide to move back in. Brian decides that once they get back to the house, they'll get a new security system, they'll make sure that everything is constantly locked. So they're basically putting this safety plan together. The day that Brian decides to go back to the house, he has Annie and Jessica in the car. They drive there and pull up into the driveway, but Brian notices there is a light on on the second floor. And Brian is absolutely positive he didn't leave any lights on in the house. So he rationalizes it and thinks, well, maybe the police were investigating and accidentally left a light on. But then Brian sees the same intruder from before dart by one of the windows. So Brian immediately stops what he's doing and calls the police again. The police are at the house within minutes. And this is when Brian finds out that law enforcement had not been in the house since the incident. They had even locked the house up and they had been monitoring it to see if anyone would return. So the police enter the house and again, they find the house in total disarray. And they also find something really strange. Someone has taken dozens and dozens of pennies, like the coin, and glued them all over the walls and ceilings of the Andrews family home. This intruder has also left some more disturbing messages to read all over the walls of the house. But one thing the police still haven't found, which is probably the most important thing, is this terrifying intruder. Eventually though, the police go into, some sources say it's Annie's bedroom, some people say it's like a washer dryer area. Uh, so I'm just gonna say they went into one room of the house and they notice that there is a gap between the wall and a built-in cabinet. So they pull the cabinet away from the wall and this is where they find a crawl space. So the police go inside of this tiny crawl space and they find evidence that something had burrowed itself in the insulation of this crawl space. Not only this, but they find clothing from the girls, Annie and Jessica, that had gone missing. So they find their clothes down there and um, their clothing had appeared to have been ejaculated on. Yeah. They find more written messages 
they find beer cans. So clearly, someone has been living down here. There are also peepholes drilled throughout various parts of the crawl space so that you could see into each room and watch Annie and Jessica and Brian at all hours of the day. And finally, the police find the intruder. And it turns out to be a deranged teenager named Daniel LaPlante. So, after you've wrapped your head around that, we need to talk about Daniel LaPlante. So who the hell is this creepy teenager? Well, I would love to tell you. So Daniel, who went by Danny, was born in 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts. He had a long history of abuse, uh, physical, mental, and sexual abuse as a child, primarily at the hands of his father. He also allegedly had been molested by a psychiatrist when he was an adolescent. And during his childhood, he was also diagnosed with learning disabilities, such as dyslexia and hyperactivity disorder. He also didn't receive any type of services or accommodations for his disorders in school. Danny had a very difficult time socializing and making friends. He was very withdrawn, and the peers at his school often called him creepy and weird. When Danny grew up to be a teenager, he became a petty thief, and he also began to enjoy breaking in to people's homes and trashing them. So it turns out that one day, a couple weeks before all of this creepy tapping started, Danny got the phone number for the Andrews family home. So he calls the house, and 15-year-old Annie answered the phone. Danny was Annie's age, 15 years old, and Danny claimed to be the child of one of their neighbors. He said he got their number from mutual friends. It sounds like he was also able to charm Annie over the phone. He even described his physical features to Annie, saying that he was well-built, he made himself out to basically be an attractive and athletic guy. He also told Annie that he was tall and blonde. So Annie and Danny talked on the phone for a while, and eventually Danny asked her out on a date. And Annie agreed. But when Danny showed up to her doorstep, she was greeted by someone who did not match the description that was given to her on the phone. According to an article from The Cinemaholic, Danny was, quote, dressed shabbily, looked unhygienic, and spoke in a manner that contradicted the boy on the phone in every way. He also had dark hair, acne, and just appeared to be disheveled. Daniel LaPlante was an OG catfish, but Annie was a nice girl, and she kind of felt bad. She still wanted to give Danny a chance. So she still agreed to go on the date with him. But during the date, Danny was very odd. At one point, he started asking Annie a lot of inappropriate questions about her recently deceased mother. 
to the point where he started asking Annie how to describe how her mom suffered and what her final moments were like. So the day didn't go well. And Annie was very upset, very disturbed. She ended the date and she stopped talking to him. So it turns out that same day, Danny followed Annie back to the home without her knowing, and he eventually found his way into the Andrews family crawl space. Danny had been living in their walls, listening to their conversations, and he had heard about Annie and Jessica being upset and dealing with their grief of their mother passing away. He would, you know, hear their conversations about it. Then he heard them play with the Ouija board, and this ultimately gave him an idea. He saw an opportunity for him to then be able to interact with Annie more. Police would later estimate that Danny had been living in their walls for months without them knowing. There were also some sources I found that claimed that Daniel LaPlante had done something similar to another family. Uh, They said that he held a family hostage, a man and his three daughters, in their home in 1986, the same year that this occurred. Uh, And this was supposedly during the same time that he was living in the Andrews family's walls. So if this is true, he wasn't just staying there all the time. He was kind of transient and disturbing other people. And this makes sense because he would have to come and go to get food and whatnot. So maybe while he was out, he was disturbing other families. It's also alleged that at one point he lived in the walls of another family's home in Pepperell, and the family ended up having to climb out of a bedroom window to escape from him. But again, the stories of those other two families are alleged. I found some sources about that, but it's not completely backed up. So after this whole ordeal with the Andrews family, Daniel was caught and arrested. He was evaluated at a psychiatric hospital before he was put into a juvenile detention center. But he was eventually released from the detention center that same year, October 1987. Danny was granted bail once the prosecutor had decided that he would be tried as an adult. So his mother came up with the $10,000 bail, which... Where has his mother been the entire time? I'm sorry, you lived in this family's home for months and you have a mom that bails you out of jail? I'm just, I'm very confused. (laughs) But anyway, somehow he gets bailed out by his mom and Daniel was given a December 1987 court date. But while Daniel was out on bail, he quickly slipped back into his old creepy habits. He returns to robbing houses, and during this time, the Andrews family moved away. So it's December 1st, 1987, and Daniel leaves his mom's house carrying guns that he had recently stolen from a neighbor's house. Daniel heads towards the woods, And he hikes for about a mile until he comes upon a house. This house is in Townsend, Massachusetts. 
And police would later say that it wasn't completely clear if he broke into the home and just got caught robbing it by the family, or if he had plans prior to harm the inhabitants all along. But the police would later find ties that he had used as restraints. So I personally think that's pretty clear. I I think this whole event was premeditated. So the house that Daniel LaPlante has stumbled upon is the home of the Gustafon family. Inside the home at the time of the incident was 33-year-old Priscilla Gustafon, a pregnant nursery school teacher, and her two children, seven-year-old Abigail and five-year-old William. Her husband, Andrew, was away for the day at work. And before I go any further, I want to say trigger warning for sexual assault and violence, okay? So Daniel ends up catching Priscilla by surprise, and he took Priscilla to the master bedroom, and this is where he raped her and shot her twice at point-blank range in the head. He then placed a pillow over her head. I'm not sure if this was to suffocate her or if this was a sign of remorse. But after he does this, he then lured Abigail and William into separate bathtubs and drowned them both. William was found with his body face down in the tub of the upstairs bathroom, while Abigail's body was found face down in the tub in the downstairs bathroom. Abigail had also suffered blunt trauma to the head and compression of her neck. Unfortunately, it was the husband, Andrew Gustafon, who would find their bodies. So Andrew later came home from work and made this horrific discovery, the worst thing you could ever come home to in your life. And at this point, Daniel has fled the Gustafon house and he's gone back to the woods. He is in hiding. Police arrived at the Gustafon family home and they investigated and found 22 caliber gun casings. And the police actually suspect Danny very quickly. So I'm wondering what all they knew about that he had been doing in this area. But it's also a small town, so he was probably able to be narrowed down as a suspect pretty quickly. And they know Danny's on bail, so they go to check his residence and they realize he's missing. So the police put a task force together to find this creepy piece of shit. Somehow the police get a tip that Danny was hiding in a lumber yard. So eventually they find him in this lumber yard hiding in a shed. And this is a few days after the murders of the Gustafon family. So Daniel LaPlante was arrested and the entire time that he was being handcuffed, put in the car and taken to the police station, he was laughing. Daniel LaPlante was booked and stripped and they found a loaded gun stuffed in his crotch. And he was later tried as an adult and found guilty in 1988. He was sentenced to three consecutive terms of life in prison with the possibility of parole in 45 years. Judge Robert A. Barton told the plant, quote, 
There are some who would say that you should receive the same sentence that you imposed on the Gustafon family. That is death by ligature or hanging. But the judge also noted that since there was no death penalty in Massachusetts at that time, the life sentence was the harshest punishment that he could impose. But I still don't understand how parole is even an option for something like this. The only thing that I can think is because he was so young, but again, they tried him as an adult. It's just crazy. So in 2013, Daniel LaPlante actually sued the state of Massachusetts for allegedly denying him access to necessary supplies for his practice of Wicca. And LaPlante claimed to be a devout Wiccan and said that the state refused to supply him with, quote, 30 essential oils and 26 herbs that he needed for his religious practice. Dragon's blood, black opium, and honeysuckle were just a few of the materials he said were necessary in order to ward off jinxes and connect with goddesses. Local practitioners of Wicca at the time were basically like, uh, yeah, no, we don't associate with this guy. Get, get him the hell away from us, put him over here. No, he's not one of us <laughs> um, at all. And they also said that the materials he was asking for <laughs> were completely unnecessary. <laughs> In 2014, Andrew Gustafon, the husband, passed away. Some sources say that he pleaded on his deathbed with his loved ones to make sure that Daniel LaPlante was never released from prison. So in 2017, Daniel LaPlante sought early parole, but he was denied. And during his court appearance, he stated, quote, Words cannot fully capture what I have done. I murdered three innocent people. Because of me, a five-year-old boy will never turn six. There's a seven-year-old girl who will never turn eight. Because of me, a woman will never be able to give birth to her third child. I robbed an unborn child of his first breath. A husband was never able, again, to hear from his family, I love you. I do not have the words to fully express my profound sorrow, but I am truly sorry for the harm I have caused. From the very essence of who I am, from the depth of my soul, I am sorry. End quote. <sighs> now, despite this plea, Daniel had met with many psychiatrists, and all of the psychiatrists concluded that he showed no signs of remorse, no emotions or feelings. So in my personal opinion, this little pity cry for empathy or sympathy, whatever, is bullshit. So heavily influenced by the findings from multiple psychological evaluations, Daniel's plea was denied. He then made another request for early parole, but was denied again in June of 2019. Daniel will be eligible for parole again in 2032 which would put him at around 62 years old. Let's hope this guy never gets out again. Sleep tight, Massachusetts. <laughs> and um, guys, if you have a room that you don't use very often, or if you have a crawl space, you know, an attic, a basement, check those spaces every so often. Uh, 
There is a phenomenon called frogging, P-H-R-O-G-G-I-N-G. And if you've never heard of frogging, look it up and um, be aware. People sometimes like to live in other people's houses without them knowing. And it's called frogging because they hop from home to home. So this is a real thing and it's still going on to this day. Very, very terrifying. So um, yeah, check those, check those spaces, everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave a five-star review, subscribe to the YouTube channel, follow the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does help so much. And you can check out my socials. My TikTok and Instagram are Perplexity Mystery Podcast. And don't forget, you can always send topic requests or share a crazy story of your own with me at perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. Sleep tight, and I will talk to you next week. Bye!